This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. All right, well, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And today, I am delighted to be joined by my great friend, Rabbi Matt Reamer. Matt, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Mark. So before we get into your chosen passage, which is Exodus 3.11, um, I know we have some young rabbis and rabbinical students listening, so I thought you might just be able to give them some advice. I know that early in, in your career, um, at one of the first weddings you did, before the event, you were absolutely crushed in a game of ping pong by a groom. In fact, the defeat was so bad that it was it was almost embarrassing for you, and uh, it must have hurt on many levels. So how did you emerge from such a defeat to perform an excellent wedding? Just talk about how you um, overcame that adversity to, uh, to perform so well, um, really within the half hour. I mean, listen, Mark, I think you and I both know that I am still dealing with the trauma of uh, that fateful day. However, you know, much like the I once caught a fish this big uh, parable, I think it's important that the record, um, as we seek truth in Torah, we should seek truth uh, everywhere. And so I think it's important for the record to reflect that how it actually went down is there was a groom on one side. I was in fact that groom. Ah, so wait a second. So you are forgetting an important part of my bio is that I, in fact, have the honor of marrying, of officiating the rabbi's husband. That's right. The, the rabbi. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So uh, just very quickly, so we can actually get into some Torah. There is a, a great story. The question is asked, obviously, the debate between Hillel and Shammai. Does one lie to a bride on her wedding day? It's a great, yes. It's an important question. We uh, we know that Hillel says, actually, yes, you do. Yeah, and I believe the question is, should you say to a bride, is the bride beautiful, if in fact you don't believe she is? And this is the question posed to Hillel and Shammai, a great question, because it really isolated when we must be truthful and when we can define truth a little more broadly. And in fact, at another conversation, we can talk about the the, the moment that that God chooses to color the truth in a way between Abraham and Sarah. So, so what happened vis-a-vis our, our, our ping-pong match is that the score was actually a lot quite closer than Mark is letting on at the beginning. And what happened in that moment is after Mark, quote-unquote, crushed the rabbi in a ping-pong game, I went to shake his hand before socially distancing. I went to shake his hand, and I said to Mark, next time I promise you I'll play with my regular hand because I played with <laughs> the whole time lefty. To which Mark honestly turned, as if it were possible, a shade of white not seen on pigment uh, ever before. And much like the, the Shammai world, I decided to tell Mark the truth and told him that I actually did, in fact, play righty. And all is right in the world. He beat fair and square. Needless to say, years later, the marriage is still intact. Yes, and uh, and and that is a great story of Hillel and Shammai. And just uh, just to finish the story before we get into Exodus three eleven. So the question was, do you say to a bride, or do you say to a groom, she's a beautiful bride, if you don't believe so? And the answer from Hillel was, 
you can do so by saying the truth by she is a beautiful bride and then whisper to you. <laughs> exactly right. Amen. Okay, so let's get into Exodus 3.11, which is, uh, I'm so glad you chose it, Matt, because it is one of the great pastors in the Torah. Why don't you just tell everyone what happened, of course, in Exodus 3.11, but also immediately before and immediately afterwards? I think it's actually really important to, to back up a little bit in order to put that text in context. And so we know the story uh, for those of us who, who follow Moses. And again, without interrupting the narrative too much, Mark, your relationship with me, our relationship started over a drink and Moses. If you recall, we first met when we first started dating Erica, and you asked me what my senior thesis was about at HUC, and we started talking about Moses and uh, and everything that he means to you and means to me, and, and that relationship blossomed from there. The story as we know it is that Moses is out with his flock and comes upon a burning bush and sees this bush. And as the text tells us, the bush is, is on fire, but not being consumed. Right. And Moses immediately sees something that strikes him as different, extraordinary, awesome in the, in the real sense of the word, and decides to approach the bush to investigate further. And that great first interaction between God and, and Moshe takes place where God says, Moshe, Moshe. And instantly Moses responds with Hineni. Hineni meaning, here I am. Here I am. So this is a phrase that's only used a, a few times throughout Torah, first by Abraham, but it means more than simply, you know, huh? Yes, I'm here. Uh, there is this idea that Moses is inviting us to think about, about what it means to show up, what it means to be present. To be completely, fully, and wholeheartedly present. It's, and Abraham, as you were saying, Matt, that was at the Akedah when he's about to sacrifice his son. He makes the declaration, Hineni, I'm here. And here we see it again with Moses saying, I'm here. It's the all-present here. Not just like I'm, I'm listening, it's the all-present here. Exactly. And I think that this is, you know, the, the tension, and I'll get to 311 in just a second, but what it means for all of our lives to be hineni, to be able to be present in our jobs, in our partnerships, in our relationships, as parents, as children, what it means to be present, knowing how hard and how much we are actually forced to wrestle with our past, to plan for the future. And I don't think that those two things should be ignored, but what it means to truly be present and how that manifests itself on a day-to-day -day basis for sure is a challenge, but it's also incredibly important when it comes to building a life uh, you know, and being on our journeys throughout life. So when you take that he name and juxtapose it with the, the conversation that takes place between God and Moshe, between verses 3-4, where he says he named and we get to 3-11, where God essentially charges Moses, you are going to go to Pharaoh. Years and years have passed. I have heard the cries of the Israelites. I am now going to redeem them out of slavery, out of Mitzrayim, out of Egypt. And you are going to go in front of Pharaoh and say those famous lines. Torah obviously took it from that great movie that our kids know so well, let my people go. And Moses, as much as he did not even pause when he said he named, uh, because the text gives us the option 
of imagining that Moshe Moshe was immediately followed by Hineni, as, as strong as that response was, equally as strong does Moses follow up with God's charge with the, with the words, with the phrase, Mi anochi, who am I? Uh, Moses asks God, who am I to go before Pharaoh? So, so, so at this point, God has basically decided that the hundreds of years of the brutal slavery that the Jews have suffered is about to end. And he's chosen Moses as to be his messenger, but even more than that, his partner in liberating the Jews. And he, he tells Moses that he has chosen him. And uh, Moses responds and says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, this is 311, and that I should take the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, but wait a second. I think that there's another way to, to turn that question around. I think that it is common and appropriate to say that God chose Moses to be that leader, to be that great leader for the Jewish people, for the Israelites, to go before Pharaoh. But what if we actually reframe it a little bit and say whether it was conscious Probably not, whether it was inadvertent, perhaps, although I would suggest to the more we learn about Moses, the less inadvertent he is. What if it was Moses that chose? Go back to where we started with the burning bush. There's a beautiful midrash that's offered by Rashi and Ibn Ezra, two medieval commentators, that suggests that the burning bush was always there. The burning bush was always burning. Uh, and I don't mean to mix metaphors here. But the burning bush was always there on fire, not being consumed, but everyone, and excuse the metaphor here, but everyone was walking past staring into their phones. Everyone was walking past it with their headphones on. Everyone was walking past it thinking about their to-do lists and their shopping lists and their emails and their phone calls. And no one saw the burning bush except Moses. Certainly, the, 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 the midrash about the bush always burning is not in the text, but what is in the text and what we know, what, we, what is in the text is the bush is in the desert, and we know that bushes burn all the time in the desert. And so Moses notices, whereas most people would go, would walk by and say, well, that's a bush burning. This is a conventional, ordinary occurrence. Moses stops and notices something different. And what he notices is he notices something extraordinary amid the ordinary. And perhaps that's what qualifies him to be the one who God chose to lead the Jews out of Egypt, because to Moses, apparently nothing's ordinary. And that, I think, is really important. It, it, it is ordinary for a bush to be concerned, consumed in the deserts, in a hot, you know, blazing. At any moment, a bush can catch fire. And it seems, you know, not only fairly ordinary, but just another typical day wandering in the desert. And what if on a baseline, Moses lives a life without even really realizing it. Moses lives a life where the ordinary is never just that. Right. The ordinary is always extraordinary. He says to God, I'm ever present, but then God chooses him. And he says in 3.11, who am I should go that I should take the children out of Israel? And what does God say to Moses when he offers this question? Before we get to that, uh, well, let me, I'll answer that, and then I'll talk about what I think is the tension between these two verses and the tension that, you know, whether it's leaders in one field or another that we, that we live with. God immediately says, I'll be with you. God says, I will be with you when you go to Pharaoh. I will be with you when you speak to the Israelites. I will be with you as you navigate your own fears. And we can get to some of those fears in just a, a couple of minutes, if you want, Mark, to talk about all the other doubts that Moses has laying out his, his list of reasons why he's the wrong guy. However, this is the tension. 
the tension that we live with between the hineni, the here I am, and the mianohi, who am I? What it means to show up, but also what it means to show up with humility. I think that's one of the great questions of the human condition that, you know, you and I offline have been exploring for years. Well, so yes, he shows up with humility later in the Torah. It said that Moses is the most humble man to, to ever live. Not so simple, like everything in Torah, to know what is meant by humility in that context because of Moses' subsequent life, which of course we're not going to go into. But but wait, but, 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 but before, you, before you go on, let me just point out, not only in Numbers does it say that there was that Moses was the most humble person who ever lived, it's the only adjective right. used to describe Moses. There's no other adjective except for anav. It's just about the only adjective used to describe anybody. I mean, there's... Yeah, there are very few adjectives, and but and this is this is like it takes this is like the author of the Torah saying, usually I'm going to tell you what happens, let you come to your own conclusions. Here, I'm just telling you, he's the most humble guy ever. Exactly. But what's very interesting is in so Moses says, "Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh?" And God doesn't answer the question. God doesn't address right. who he doesn't address who Moses. He just says, "I'll be with you," because That's I think right. this this teaches us what true intimacy is. Sometimes when you're truly intimate with someone, and that person asks you a question, you know. That the presenting problem, as my friend Michael Oren says, is not the problem. The presenting problem is not the problem. The problem is something else. God knows that for Moses, the problem is not who, who he is. It's how am I going to get the job done? How am I going to do this? That's Moses' real question. Not who am I, but how am I going to do this? God, because he's intimate with Moses, knows the real question and answers the real question. God doesn't answer Moses' question. He answers Moses' real question. And that question continues in all the different ways in which Moses says, I'm not the oldest. I have an older brother. Aaron is really more up to the job. Or the Israelites won't believe me. It's really the Israelites who are going to be complaining and seeing me. I'm a stutterer. I have a lisp. I can't even speak right. I don't even know the words to say if I am able to speak right. On and on. I guess we could call them excuses. On and on the excuses go. And God, to your point, Mark, each time answers not the specific but really the sense of we are going to be able to do this together because we are in covenant with each other we're in relationship that's right and then and then in 313 when moses says the children of israel are going to ask me about you what's your name and god gives the greatest answer ever he said i will be what i will be but then he says just go tell them that i am the god of your forefathers abraham isaac and jacob what god is basically saying is don't worry about theology. It's not about me in heaven. There's very, actually, there's very little Jewish theology. If, if we define theology as a study of God in heaven, there's very little about it because it's really about what God wants to do on earth, not what he's doing in heaven. And I think this is where God introduces it, where God says, don't ask me about me in heaven. It's really, not, it's really none of your concern. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect what we have to do together. And we have to do together is here on earth. And that's to make the earth a place for freedom. And he gives him that charge. Yeah, to your last point, Mark, uh, about it's not about theology. Let's just unpack that for a second. When God says, I will be what I will be, again, this is much like you just mentioned, the Akedah, the story of, of Abraham and Isaac and, and sacrificing Isaac. Talk about the faith that Moses is required to step into this, this, this mandate, to step into this mission, to step into this relationship. The faith that he needs to have to be able to go to the Israelites and explain to the Israelites, this is who has sent me. This is what has been promised to us. And, and not, not the Israelites, but to Pharaoh. He's going to the king of Egypt and, the king, and he's going to the most powerful man in the world 
who runs the most powerful empire the world's ever seen. And he's going to say, God, who, if you recognize him at all, you recognize, you Pharaoh recognize him as one lowercase g God out of many. He said, God has sent me to liberate the Jews from you. And thus it teaches the world that there's only one God. And then we get into the Exodus story. You're right. The audacity of the assignment cannot be overestimated. Not, not only can it not be overestimated, but this is this is what I think is is one of the, the the most special things about a covenant is that without having a history, without having years and years of sharing a beer and shared experience and and laughter and memories and a story that you've been telling together, the faith that God and Moses have in each other is is remarkable and and I think can go to what is at the core of Hineni. And Mianohi, because part of what we're talking about when we go back to the, the, the text is that Moses is saying in 3 4, he named me. And what's implied is I am here and you're not gonna, you're not gonna leave me hanging. You're not gonna leave me out in the desert alone. You're not gonna diss right. me. You're not gonna ghost me. You're not gonna just leave me for, for, for naught. And so there is an empirical sense of faith in the statement itself, he named me. Fast forward to 3.11, for him to then hear the charge, hear the mission, hear the challenge, for him to then say, who am I, completely exposing himself to vulnerabilities where God could say, where God could easily say, actually, you know what, you're right. I'm not really sure if you're up to the task. Let's move on to the next victim, as it were. That is as exposing of oneself as there ever is in juxtaposition to the most profound, uh, uh, strongest statement of saying, here I am. I am present with you, followed with me, Anuchi, is is really powerful when it comes to what it means to be in sacred covenant with somebody uh, and with God and our own self. Right. And I know that this 311 that you've chosen has inspired leaders all throughout history. It was almost now romantic notion of a leader is he or she who is like Moses and has says and, and says, you actually don't mean me. And then, of course, that person is later convinced. But it's that initial humility that qualifies people for the mantle of leadership. When you walk into a synagogue, lots of synagogues have some phrase over the ark. And right. that phrase is often meant to uh, get us to think before we sit down. One of the phrases that's often on top of the ark is know before whom you stand. And what's really interesting about that is that there are, I, I met a rabbi once that take, that took that phrase and actually put it on the pew, on the, on the bima, so that it's facing, it was facing him. So facing the rabbi rather than facing the congregants? Exactly. So the congregation looks up to be able to see the know before whom you stand as a way of reflecting you know, oneself as they're getting ready for prayer, getting ready for learning, getting ready for connection. But really that phrase is actually right in front of the pew staring, uh, right in front of the, 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 um, the bima staring back at the rabbi so that the rabbi, whose back is to the ark, can always be reminded, know before whom you stand. In other words, who am I to lead these people? Who am I to teach what I have to say what I have to glean from Torah. Who am I that I am so special that the words that I might offer, the words that I might 
suggest as to how to live our lives would be accepted by the people sitting in front of me. It, 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 it's all tied to this great sense of the relationship between leadership and humility and how the two are not oxymoronic, but rather enhanced. Right. And, and, and the, 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 the notion of humility is a fascinating uh, conversation for another time in, in regards to Moses, because Moses knows just how great he is. He, he's not falsely humble. He's genuinely humble. And then he sublimates himself to his principles, but he knows just how great he is. And what's interesting, too, is this is not the only notion of responding to God's calling in the Bible. Later, we have Gideon, who, when he responds to God's call, he just says, choose me. You know, first he repents, cleansing himself, and then he says, choose me. So there's no one right way to interact with God to respond to God. In both cases, they exercise humility. Moses directly, Gideon, by cleansing himself to make himself prepared for the call. But then he just says, choose me, I'm ready to go. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that right, leadership comes in all forms. Uh, one of my teachers, Rabbi Norman Cohen, wrote a wonderful book about Moses and leadership and actually, te- and actually brings the reader through five different leaders throughout Jewish history and the different ways they approach leadership. There is a place for leadership to be not just chosen, but also taken. I mean, there is a way in which you want, I mean, you know, as, as athletes, you know, who I've played on a lot of different sports teams throughout time. Not ping pong, though. Uh, no, ping pong, I'm still a work in progress, as we all are in some ways or another. Teams want somebody, as the metaphor goes, to step up to the plate, to be a leader, to carry a team. It's often the quarterback on a football team. But in, in many times, when you go into the locker room and you hear about those locker room stories, it's, of course, Michael Jordan, as we saw on the last dance. You know, it, it is sometimes fairly obvious who's going to take the reins of leadership, but not all the time. There are other times, there are other great stories where it was Ronnie Lott, who was the safety for the Raiders and then the Jets and then the Niners, that took on this mantle of leadership. And you never would have known it because of how soft-spoken he was off the field. And so there's, I don't mean to mix metaphors between sports and, and Torah here, but leadership can manifest itself in lots of different ways. The Torah educates on everything. There's, there's no mixing of metaphors when it comes to the Torah. So um, moving from one text to another, from the Torah to another text, this is always the concluding question, is um, the, the text is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells the story of, um, he said, I had just uh, run into a man with whom I had served in the war. And he said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, I've learned two things. He said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in your almost 15 years in the rabbinate, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Gosh, well, you know, it's a good opportunity to offer, I think, one of my favorite verses beyond Torah, but it's in Bible, and it comes from the book of Kohelet, the book of Ecclesiastes. And I know that you're going to have discussions with other people about this. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 12 in Ecclesiastes, it's attributed to Solomon, and so it's a a good way of, of, of talking about Solomon's leadership, which is different than Moses. But very simply, the verse says, always be happy and do good in this world. I'm paraphrasing. But always be happy and do good things in this world. And I think part of the human condition 
is trying to figure out sort of the chicken and the egg theory. Are we going to do good things that will lead us to happiness? Or are we happy and therefore are able to do good things? I think that there's a relationship between the two. The second thing I was actually taught by Professor uh, Lenny Kravitz at HUC, and his words to every student, I think, is as powerful then as it is today and will be forever. And he said very simply, always be yourself, unless you're a schmuck, in which case be somebody else. That's great. Well, uh, I think there's uh, no better uh, no, no, no better uh, way or advice to conclude the Rabbi's Husband uh, podcast than that uh, terrific advice from uh, Rabbi Professor Kravitz. So, uh, Matt, thank you for bringing that to us, and thank you for uh, sharing your ideas and your wisdom with us on the, uh, on the Rabbi's Husband. Mark, my pleasure. We will meet again on the ping pong table, uh, socially distanced to, to start with, so it's perfect. Well, ping pong is made for social distance, so... Uh, exactly, exactly right. Very safe sport these days. Excellent. Okay, thank you. All right, be well, be safe, be healthy. You too. You are the God of the brave. If you don't give us a breakthrough in the house tonight, clap your hands up high. Shout, breakthrough, breakthrough. You are the God. You are the God of the breakthrough. Oh, no, when I can't see my way through, and I really don't.